This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. If most people had to face consequences for the mean things they did and said, most people wouldn't do it again. But when you take those barriers away, it really contributes to a fetishized, decontextualized mode of being on the Internet where you really do feel like you are immune. Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I want to start today with something that is actually going on. The Florida Senate election, it's so close, it is in a recount. And ever since that recount came into view, President Donald Trump has been tweeting this storm of, I don't even know what to call this, like illiberal, dangerous bullshit. He's been alleging voter fraud, invented ballots, anything he can think of to frame an effort to count votes as an effort to steal the election. It is honestly disgusting. Now, we in the media, we're covering what Trump is saying. Of course we are. We have to. Sometimes we're credulously amplifying his tweets, and, and when we do that, that's awful. But more often, we're skeptically, seriously debunking him. But even while we're doing that, we're filling the airwaves with this idea that actually counting the votes is the Democratic position, and the Republican position is that Democrats are trying to steal an election. This is the dynamic happening all of the time right now. This is one of the central challenges Trump poses to the media. He does or says something completely outrageous. He starts up a fear-mongering campaign against a migrant caravan that's more than 1,000 miles from the border. He bars a CNN reporter from the press room. And then we go into negative coverage mode. We go into emergency coverage mode because a president of the United States is talking like a crackpot or acting like an authoritarian. And when we do that... He turns the entire conversation to the exact thing he wants to talk about. He crowds everything else out, and he feeds off the spectacle of his war with the media. The normal media dynamic is that negative coverage is our stick. No one wants negative coverage, but Donald Trump does. He uses negative coverage the way Batman uses a pain of childhood loss. It's the fuel that powers his whole public character, the energy that makes his presidency possible, the story that makes his supporters sympathize with his crazy campaign and excuse away his worst behavior. What's happening here isn't normal. 
The media is caught in a dynamic we don't really understand and we really don't know how to break. But there is someone who does understand it, or at least understands it better than anyone else I've talked to. I first spoke to Whitney Phillips, a scholar of communications at Syracuse, a few weeks ago. I was calling her to discuss a report she had written months and months back on how internet trolls manipulate the media into covering them. And it was, when I, I read it, this perfect description of how Donald Trump manipulates the media. It was all the same stuff, all the same tactics. And when I talked to her, she was so brilliant and, and thoughtful on this stuff that I immediately knew we needed to have her on the show. I want to note how grim it is that the best training for understanding the president's media strategy is to have studied internet trolls for years and years. But that's the world we live in, so here we are. As always, you can email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here we go. Whitney Phillips, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So how do you become a troll researcher? <laughs> um, are your parents very proud? They are bemused and um, have, to- have tolerated basically me coming home and telling them about everything that's terrible for the last 10 years. So they, they have really, um, have to give them a lot of credit. They are supportive and um, also often terrified. So really, like, how did you get into studying this? When I, when I look at your bio, it says you, you studied folklore literature. <laughs> well, it, my PhD is actually in English. And the English department, the program that I was um, entering into in 2008, it was at the University of Oregon. And they had a, sort of a strong media studies focus, but primarily sort of film and TV. So that's why. <laughs> so so that's why I wasn't doing English literature. I was there for sort of the media studies angle within an English department. But the way it happened is that I entered my program thinking that I was going to study political humor. That's always been sort of my interest point. And long personal story, I ended up in Eugene, Oregon, a couple of months before my program actually started and was kind of like, well, uh, what should I be doing? Um, because my program was about to start, I couldn't get a full-time job. It didn't make sense. So I, I started basically kind of collecting information, sort of doing some research, although I didn't quite know what I was looking at because I just had a lot of time and I knew, okay, political humor. It's 2008. I am going to look at how people employ humor talking about the upcoming 2008 election. Perfect. So I was spending a lot of time online. Simultaneous to this, my dear brother, who at the time would have been 16, 17, I think, he uh, kept telling me about this great website called 4chan and kept imploring me to go visit and said that I, you know, I would really like it there. And at the time, I had no frame of reference for trolling. I didn't know what it was. I had never heard that word. And so, of course, I did not know that my brother was trying to troll me. So I, I ended up going on to 4chan for the very first time. Um, and, and what I saw was, first of all, for those who are not familiar, um, 4chan at the time was just overrun with, let's say, problematic content. That's putting it um, lightly. But what was really interesting was all of the political humor stuff that I was looking at in more sort of mainstream channels on other kind of blogs. There was a surprising amount of overlap in sort of, if not outright jokes, but then at least a tone, sort of a particular kind of mimetic tone that I wasn't familiar with, of course, but that connection, that overlap was really fascinating to me. So I just continued pressing on. And from that point, I was still interested in political humor, but I was interested in the kind of ah, sideways, ambivalent, deeply, deeply complicated humor that was emerging from these trolling spaces. So that was that was the general trajectory. And then I just, I never turned back. I My first paper I ever wrote in my English program 
was about 4chan, and then every single one subsequent to that was too, and that was what my dissertation was about. Okay, describe 4chan to my mom. <laughs> okay, 4chan is a simple image board. Um, it was created in the early 2000s. It doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles. Um, it is just where a lot of folks post typically almost exclusively anonymous content if you, especially the B board. So Fortune has a number of content-specific boards, and the most infamous and active board was the B or random board, B as in boy, and you would go on to B, and it would be just an overwhelming amount of posts about every conceivable <laughs> offensive uh kind of framework that you could imagine. Lots of memes, lots of outrageous humor, lots of people trying to goad and antagonize other users. And it just was a site where, and I'm talking about 4chan in 2008, it was just a site where a lot of sort of young internet-y type people would basically troll and be trolled and where trolls, trolled, trolls, trolled, trolls. Um, and that was that was the space that I originally started out looking at in 2008. Trolling. I, I just want to make sure we've defined some terms as we get into this conversation. What is trolling? <laughs> so at the time, I laugh because the term has undergone a significant amount of it's transformed quite a bit over the last 10 years. And that's also why I was careful to sort of stipulate, you know, describing 4chan to your mom in 2008 is a very different task than describing 4chan to your mom in 2018. So just sort of referring to the original um, site that I was looking at in my research. But early on, um, in the early mid-2000s, troll was a subcultural term indicating that a person self-identified as a troll, that it was a point of identity. And it implied that people utilized sort of highly specific subcultural terminology to um, essentially try to elicit the strongest negative reaction from onlookers as possible. So you would have people who would would go out into the wider internet and just try to mess with people to get them to become angry. And then participating trolls would laugh. Trolls would also troll other trolls, hence trolls, trolling, trolls, trolling, trolls. And so this term... It had been around for about 10 years or 15 years, I guess, depending on the circles before that. And it had originally, in the early internet days, implied basically someone that was being sort of disruptive or trying to flame others, just sort of causing problems. But it was a term that that people used to accuse someone else of doing behavior that they didn't quite like. The early mid-2000s was when it became this point of self-identification. And it became increasingly visible in popular culture because more and more reporters started writing stories about the activities of these self-described trolls. And as more people started using the term to describe mischief and antagonism and efforts to make other people angry or rage, it became more nebulous and, in fact, sort of looped back around to the original very early meaning, which was when people would use it to sort of accuse someone else of, of behaving badly, basically ruining ruining someone else's online experience. And it's become so such a nebulous term over the last 10 years that I don't really use it anymore because it doesn't does not clearly identify what kind of behavior you're talking about when people use the term troll now. They could be referring to anything from just sort of teasing someone on Facebook to sort of engaging in white supremacist um, violent rhetoric. So it's a it's a tricky term, and so I try to historicize it. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a slippery slope. Sometimes you're just making ma- making some fun on Facebook, and sometimes you're, you're you become a neo Nazi, and it can happen so quickly <laughs> on the internet today. <laughs> this is actually what I want to what I want to start teasing apart a little bit because. 
I'm part of this period in the internet. I, I wasn't on 4chan, but I was on something awful. I remember that and like loving the Photoshop threads and all that. And, and I read Reddit and, you know, I was on, you know, like I, I was part of the internet in the early aughts. So I remember some of the trolling world. And at the same time, there is something that happens over the past like 10-ish years in which the thing people are talking about when they talk about trolling is not just kids being jerks on the internet, which is how I would have more or less defined the term, but it becomes a kind of cultural primordial goo out of which a lot of different subcultures begin to emerge. And some of those seem to be pretty powerful now. So I I guess my question is, what happens that makes trolling an important thing for understanding modern politics on the internet? When does that shift occur? Oh, I actually, so I have thought about this a lot, and I think that that shift occurs from the very beginning. It's just that at the time, people who were participating and even scholars who were studying it in the sort of early days couldn't quite identify it because it was emergent. So 4chan and the output of the B-board in particular, so so this was really confined, not exclusively, but, but the B-board was where much of this activity was happening from the very inception what we came to we, what many people who spent a lot of time on the internet came to identify as sort of meme culture or internet culture, which already are kind of nebulous terms unto themselves, that if you were part of meme culture or internet culture, that makes perfect sense to you. You know what that means. But for who people who weren't part of it, you're like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. But sort of Images with, you know, text at the top and at the bottom and certain recognizable mimetic forms and certain inside jokes, turns of phrase, the way that people would talk in kind of um, torturous syntax, particular kinds of torturous syntax. So much of what became associated with sort of mainstream Internet culture, the sort of stuff that ended up on Know Your Meme and reported out, you know, by spaces like BuzzFeed, so much of that can be traced back to 4chan. And 4chan, the part of the story is that over the last 10 years, in particular, 4chan has really transformed from being kind of a it wasn't that it was a value-neutral space, of course, because a lot of really problematic stuff was was taking place on the board, but it didn't have a clear politics the way that the site often is described now, that now it's sort of a bastion for a lot of extremist, reactionary, white supremacist behavior. That's not quite how it was in the early, mid-2000s, but some of the frame, some of the those foundations were being laid, and you could kind of see the inherent sort of fetishization, the white centrality, the male centrality that was taken for granted in a lot of those early memes and mimetic play that might not have seemed especially violent or especially problematic, but then became kind of baked into what became sort of known to many people as internet culture and normalized, I think, a pretty fetishized, emotionally detached tonality and mode of discourse that then became normalized within broader sort of mainstream pop culture corners and then suffused itself into political discourse, I think, so that, you know, we can talk about the big, what people often want to focus on is Gamergate, you know, in 2014, that was when really the discourse started shifting and it became clear that we were talking about very ideologically violent 
behaviors and attitudes. And that is a really important moment to demarcate when the politics crystallized and became violent and dangerous in a really obvious way. But I think we need to push that analysis further back and think about where were these burgeoning elements in 2003 and how did they bake themselves into sort of internet fun. I mean, when, you know, the kind of fun stuff that we still, some of us associate with early internet culture, I think it was tainted. And I think it was tainted in a way that was difficult to recognize at the time for many participants, but it allowed a lot of that toxicity to really metastasize in subsequent years. So I think really reflecting on the origins of trolling and of meme culture, internet culture, whatever you want to call it, thinking about what was in what was in the water all the way back when and how does that then influence where we have ended up currently. So I love that idea. So I want to do that. I want to talk about what was in the water then. And I, I do just want to take a moment here and like signpost this conversation for, for people listening. You mentioned Gamergate. We're, we're going to get to that. We're laddering up here. The thing I ultimately want to talk about is Donald Trump and the relationship <laughs> between Donald Trump's communication styles and efforts at media manipulation and trolls' ways of doing that and the media itself and how the media exists in a symbiotic relationship with all these different things. And there's a lot here. So if you think right now, like we're just talking about weird boards in, in 08, we're going to get there, right? <laughs> yeah. Like there's a there's a whole structure that needs to get built up um, here. And it's really, really weird. But but talk to me about what was what was in the water. Talk to me about what was tainted about early internet culture that seemed so fun. I mean, it was fun, actually, just for the record. <laughs> well, and, and part of it was that many of the participants, so we, we, you have to sort of back up and talk about this in terms of race, gender, and class. So the vast, the overwhelming majority of people who were posting to 4chan's B-board in particular, they did so anonymously. So if you didn't fill something out in the, in the name field, it auto-populated as anonymous. That's why the nebulous hacker collective anonymous was initially associated with 4chan because all of the participants were exactly that. And they kind of acted, their their behavior was this collective anonymous identity. They referred to each other as anons and then as the mass noun as anonymous. And then that is also part of this weird story where it ended up taking a far left turn, but we're getting <laughs> way ahead of ourselves. But so part of what was fun for those participants, and in my research, all of the research I've encountered Every life experience I've ever had strongly suggests that those participants were primarily white, middle class, um, maybe not American necessarily, but at least were sort of invested in and well-versed in American popular culture. So, and male. And, and so you have, it's not that everyone who participated were fell into those demographics, but at least symbolically in terms of the things, the way that their communication styles were, the things that they focused on, all of those things indicated that that symbolic demographic. So we're talking about people who were already maybe didn't, maybe weren't privileged in the sense that their life was easy, but they were able to very easily pick and choose the degree to which their personal beliefs lined up with what they did and said on the internet. It was very easy for that particular group to engage in a kind of 
arm's length, ironic racism, sort of detached, fetishized laughter because their bodies were not under threat by any of the humor that they were engaging in. It wasn't ultimately going to affect them and those behaviors that they were referring to. So lots and lots of play with anti-Semitism and lots and lots of play with racism and lots and lots of play with misogyny. And I don't want to be an apologist and say, well, they were actually really nice offline. It does, that kind of doesn't matter. The thing that matters is that there was this willingness, there was this green light to play with those ideas and then not face any consequences. And that's what made those spaces fun for participants because you could play a racist on the internet and then you could close your computer and go live your life and never have to think about that action again. So under those conditions, it was just really easy to not think about the embodied repercussions of the things that people said and did on the internet, that you got to just say, I was just trolling. You know, I was just, you know, these are just memes. It's just the internet. And and you just didn't have to take responsibility. Of course, that does not mean that those were consequence-free behaviors. Women and people of color and and anybody that whose bodies were um, potentially in danger because of those actions. They, of course, didn't experience it as fun and funny in the early aughts. But for those who weren't in danger and who could kind of pick and choose and put on the troll hat when they wanted and take it off when they wanted, it was it was fun for them because, it, because they, there were no consequences for it. So there were lots of people who were, you know, didn't mean any harm and who probably didn't hold any racist ideals in their heart in any kind of obvious way that they would at least acknowledge, who engaged in this highly fetishized, problematic behavior where it was fun and funny to kind of play with transgression in this way that was safe and you didn't have to answer to anybody. And it was all all people people did it for the lulls. They did it because basically they could. But I want to I want to jump in on that that word transgression there because Angela Nagel has been on this podcast in the, in the past and I think has done really good work here. One of the ideas that, that she puts forward is that what was happening in that space, what continues to happen in that space is you've got a lot of young men who are testing boundaries and who – what is more transgressive than being a racist or an anti-Semite or a misogynist on the internet saying things that will get you in trouble in the real world but you're now doing it be, behind the cover of anonymity? And then you catch people say, oh, no, no, I'm just, I'm just playing around. I'm just trolling. But, but there is this, there's this deep appeal when you're, when you're young, when, when you're young to different forms of transgression. There are a lot of others, right? We could talk about there's drug use. There's all kinds of different things that people, people can and do do. Um, vandalism, right? But here on the internet, it seems that there was a subculture that emerged about, finding transgression in violating these social norms. And then at some point for some people, not everyone, but for some people, you're doing it to be transgressive and ironic. And then eventually you're just doing it. And there's some kind of, you, you, you pass through some permeable boundary and you may not even know it's happened, but like now you're not like a play anti-Semite, you're just an anti-Semite. <laughs> So I agree with that to an extent. I also think that thinking about the spaces themselves, the sort of digital tools, the affordances of, of online spaces is really important to this conversation. Because you did have some people who, and this is from my own research that I did all that, all those years ago, that some folks were, they were actively making a choice to transgress, that they were saying, these are our sacred cows and I am going to transgress against them, that it was a choice that they were making deliberately and with some self-reflection. You know, a good number of people who I worked with, they knew what they were doing. 
and they did it because they were transgressing. But in a lot of cases, there wasn't a self-reflective awareness that that's actually what they were doing. That in many cases, you had individuals, so to talk about the affordances, uh, what I mean by that. When you're online, um, my co-author and I talked about this in our last book, digital spaces are characterized by modifiability, so you can, you know, tinker with stuff. Modularity, you can tinker with stuff and not ruin the original thing. Accessibility, you can get to something that you want to find. And then archivability, you can save it for later and then use it in another context. And that, those four affordances basically characterize all of Wait, the- Wait, can I, can I have you repeat those? Yeah, yeah. So modularity. Modularity. I like this. So modularity is you can take the, a part of a thing and not destroy the whole of a thing. Modifiability is like basically photoshops, like you can tinker with it archivability, you can save it for later. You don't have to, it doesn't get destroyed. If you don't use it now, you can save it to your hard drive or save it to wherever. And then accessibility, you can find it later through basically data tagging. Like you can search for mermaid pictures, whatever, and find mermaid pictures, right? So all of these affordances, they are the backbone for all of the creative, amazing play that people engage in online. This is what allows for Photoshop. This is what allows for remixes and mashups and all of the stuff that is fun about the Internet. And that ability to sort of pick and choose and to focus only on the part of something and not on the whole of something also lends itself to unavoidable decontextualization, that you're able to reduce entire texts and their context, or you're able to reduce a particular sort of broader context, including the emotional impact of a particular behavior, the backstory, basically, and you reduce it to a GIF, or you reduce it to an image, or you reduce it to a single tweet, or whatever the case might be. And so the internet itself, because of how it's set up, it encourages people to only look at stuff through a very myopic, tiny little pinprick hole and then not have to take into account any of the broader issues that might be hidden from view. And so with a lot of trolls that I worked with, like I said, some of them were actively trying to transgress. Many of them, I don't know if I would say most because it's hard to quantify, but many, many, many people who engaged in these highly problematic behaviors, they they did it because their eyesight had essentially been limited, that they were not ever forced to deal with the repercussions of their behaviors. They engaged in sort of this kind of transgressive play or or whatever kind of play it was. And they didn't, at the very least, they didn't have to see somebody else's face fall. Right. Can I jump in on this here? Because yeah. I, I want to try to separate out two things that, that you've made me think about. So one, I, I wonder how many teenagers at all know that what they're doing is trying to transgress, right? Like I mm-hmm. I wasn't a particularly rebellious kid, but but I had my my spaces. And I think now looking back, I can see that there was an appeal to transgression. But at the time, it's like, oh, just like weed is fun. Or, <laughs> right. you know, like I, I did a certain amount of like TPing houses and that kind of thing. But I actually think the TPing houses is a good example here of the second thing you're, you're pointing out, which I, I do think is really important, which is this kind of absence of context and repercussion. When, you know, when I, when I would um, TP a house, you did have this knowledge. I mean, it was in a community you were in, you had seen it happen. You knew somebody was going to get up the next morning and have to clean all that up. Or when you said something mean to somebody, you did, as you, as you say, see their face fall. And on the internet, none of that happens. Like these sort of checks. Um, I remember, you know, I, I once went to the, 
<laughs> I once went to the campus of my local university and dropped uh, pumpkins off of a roof because, <laughs> like, that was a fun thing to do. But I sort of realized when I walked downstairs that, like, oh, some janitor is going to have to clean up all this fruit I just dropped off the roof as a 14-year-old, and I'm sort of an mm -hmm. asshole. And that is a, a check. It made me not really do that again. And you're saying that doesn't happen on the internet, that the ability to just keep going further, it's a greased path. It, it doesn't have any of that normal friction of seeing the consequences of your actions in the real world. Yeah. I mean, and so a lot of people make the assumption that the reason we can't have nice things on the internet is because of anonymity. It's this ability to hide your, you know, hide your face behind a mask. And that's what makes us act poorly. And, you know, in some cases that's true, but anonymity can also both in online and embodied context, anonymity can enhance pro-social behavior, right? So really the the one unifying um, characteristic of online spaces that better explains this phenomena phenomenon is reduced social risk. And that's a concept from the late 90s. And it basically is exactly what you're describing, that it's not that the internet is a consequence-free space, but if you're really mean to someone on the internet, they're not going to punch you in the nose. They can't. Like, they're, the fact that there's not both sort of physical repercussions, but then also the inability to sort of see how your joke lands. Because, I mean, and that was the thing that was so maybe surprising and interesting and complicated my research as I was doing it is that a lot of the people I was I was studying, they were engaging in horrible behavior, but they didn't mean to, and not to not to excuse it and not to say that made it okay. But it was really a function in many cases of them. They had their myopic little view of the world and they were they were in this privileged position such that they just never ever had to think outside of their own amusement in that moment. So they did awful things and they could be greatly harmful to other people. But I think we're missing a piece of the story if we just assume that they did it because they wanted to transgress. Most of them had no idea why they did what they did. I don't know. It was just what they did on the internet. That's kind of what their friends did. It was just, I don't know, they just did it. And they just never really had to think about what happened next. They never had to clean up their own pumpkins. And never having to clean up your own pumpkins means, yeah, you're not going to have the kind of corrective that if most people had to face consequences for the mean things they did and said, most people wouldn't do it again. But when you take that away, when you take those barriers away, it really contributes to a fetishized, decontextualized mode of being on the internet where you really do feel like you are immune and that consequences when they don't matter, then why would that impact your behavior? So I think that that's a really important part of this story. And that's where a lot of the really ugly, the really ugly rhetoric and the really sort of violent ideologies, that's the place where they metastasized is that you had a, a whole group of people who never had to think about what happened as soon as they left their online spaces. So one of the other things in the water at this point is irony, this sort of hyper-layered ironic discourse. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that, about, about the way the, the internet sort of fell into or developed, I, I guess I don't know, a real vernacular of, of very dense irony that allowed people to sort of hide and like jump in between whichever layer they were claiming to be on at that moment? Yeah, I mean, I think that irony stems from 
decontextualization being a feature, not a bug. You know, that, that you could just kind of say stuff on the internet. And then if the, if the game was to garner a reaction, you in your mind, you knew that you didn't mean the thing that you said, but there really was this normalization for many groups of people, particularly young white men, that meaning didn't mean the same thing on the internet as it did offline. So that's how this idea within the troll space, what became very normalized was this idea of, I did it for the lulls. And lulls meant that you managed to piss somebody off or to generate a response, that you got a rise out of somebody. And so people were able within these spaces to just focus on online behavior in terms of lulls. If it made your friends laugh and if it made you laugh, then it was fine. And so an ironic kind of mode of being, I think, stems from that because it's not so much, I mean, irony is a, is a very tricky concept to define and to make sense of, but it's the way that I see it on the internet is sort of, it's consequence free. At least you feel that it's consequence free, that, that it's not tethered to anything that's real and you don't feel like you have to ever offer anything that's real. And for, you know, trolls in the troll space, if they were to really declare themselves, their positions on, on any, any issue, it didn't matter what it was, but if you declared an emotional attachment, that was grounds for other people trolling you. So there was kind of this social norm of not taking things seriously, not ever having to stand behind anything you ever said, and getting to play in these ways where everything was about the punchline. There was no context. All it was was punchlines. Because 4chan had such a strong gravitational pull and so much mimetic material, so many inside jokes, so many turns of phrase, so much from 4chan filtered out into the broader um, internet landscape, that attitude of kind of like everything is at arm's length, nothing really matters, there's no grounding because it's, quote, just the internet, I think that really became entrenched in how a lot of people, primarily white, middle class, physically safe people— that was their mode of engagement. And the more that that mode of engagement was amplified and further normalized in increasingly mainstream circles, the kind of cooler it became to not care and to not ever have to say, now, wait a minute, what do I really believe? And what are the repercussions of this? And how should I, how should I basically approach online behavior ethically? So what irony did is it killed a sense of reflective everyday ethics. And, and that's the thing that stayed in the water and then, and then started to grow monsters basically over time. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. 
Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. So I want to set up this next line of questioning here for a minute. Um, I, I did this podcast a couple weeks back with Jay Rosen talking about media failures. And a listener sent me a book recommendation for this book that is about thinking about how complex systems fail called Drift into Failure, which has been super interesting for me. But one of the things the book argues is that we tend to want to find failures as like a broken part or a bad person inside one system when failures in, in sort of modern hyper-complex systems have to do with the relationships between a bunch of different systems falling out of place or getting out of control all at the same time. And the period of time we're talking about in the kind of troll space itself is a period of time where things are much more contained just because the internet itself is much more contained. It isn't as big, number one, but it also doesn't have the transmission mechanisms it has now. And it seems to me that something that happened sort of in the post-2008 landscape, something that makes Gamergate possible, that makes Donald Trump possible, happens in the relationship between these spaces of like hyper-intense mimetic virality and their relationship with like rising platforms based around algorithmic social media and their relationship with a mainstream media that is increasingly hungry for the internet to tell it what will get traffic and get people to click in a more competitive atmosphere. And so I guess I'm I'm curious, one, if you see that as a, a kind of structure that makes sense to you, but two, I guess more broadly, how does trolling slip its reins, right? How does it get out of these sort of contained spaces of 4chan or something awful or Reddit and become a, a, a fairly, I don't want to call it dominant mode of discourse, but a common mode of discourse online? Yeah, I mean, so the first point of sort of comp- thinking about failure in a different way, I really, and I've I've thought about this a lot, and this is part of, you know, how my co-author um, and I sort of conceptualized, operationalized those, the affordances of digital media, is that this isn't a function of failure. This is a function of success. That this isn't, the system didn't break. The system is working. And that's part of the reason why dealing with, problems within sort of journalism right now is so tricky is that, you know, this effort to encourage virality and the ease with which information spreads across and between online platforms and algorithmically driven engagement, that's what it's supposed to do. When you're talking about a click-based web economy, right, where things are supposed to travel quickly and lots of eyeballs are supposed to get on something, this is what you get. So the trouble that we're in right now is not because our systems have failed. It's that our systems work really well. So that makes figuring out, okay, well, what are some intervention strategies when the problem is is that something is functioning in the way that it was designed to, not to this end. People didn't design these systems to facilitate the spread of mis- and disinformation and to basically set the world on fire, but that's been the result because these things are functioning so well. So so that's the the first point. The second point of how did 4chan, how did trolling reach the level of prominence that it did? 
So in my research, when I started in 2008, I had a lot of conversations with scholars at the time. We sort of had an informal bet going of whether or not trolling would ever go mainstream because it was so – even if it wasn't obviously political in the way that that it is maybe now or those spaces are politicized now – It was still, for anybody who spent any time on 4chan in 2009, 2010, it would peel your skin off. I mean, that was, it could be so unbelievably offensive and dehumanizing and terrifying for the uninitiated. So it was a rough space. And so for those of us who are studying the space, we were like, there's just no way that when you look at the history of capitalism, capitalism always manages to find a way to ideologically incorporate elements that might threaten it, right? And we were like, oh, this couldn't possibly happen. It's too offensive. No advertiser was ever going to want to put anything on 4chan. This is unsustainable. And part of the reason for that, too, was because the only people who really had access to the inside jokes and who understood the references and got all of the memes, you had to be embedded within the subculture. It wasn't something you could just come to and fully understand. There was sort of a kind of a Wikipedia-ish type mechanism for, for trolls at the time called Encyclopedia Dramatica, but it was written in the style of trolling for trolls. So if you weren't already pretty well-versed in the subculture, it wouldn't make any sense to you, and it would be so offensive that it would send, certainly, advertisers screaming. And then in 2011, something changed that, and that something was called Know Your Meme. So Know Your Meme was an offshoot of Rocket Boom, um, which was sort of an internet culture-focused kind of platform with a YouTube channel and did videos and other content. And so then Know Your Meme grew out of this space. And and Know Your Meme became the first basically database that wasn't just accessible to the average person. It was sanitized enough that suddenly advertisers were able to, to enter the space. So if advertisers were had a question about a particular meme that was trending, like the rage face, for example, is, is, a, is a good one, they would be able to then type in, thanks to accessibility, right, um, they would be able to type in rage face into Know Your Meme and then get a safe for work-ish. I mean, it was it was written in, in sort of standard English. Um, it had a lot of examples. You could follow um, the trajectory of particular memes. And it was then and only then that marketers and advertisers were able to enter into the space and start commoditizing trolling content. And once that happened everything changed. So I started this project. It was a subcultural project. It was pretty fringe. Um, I didn't quite know where, I I had a feeling that there was something interesting there, but I couldn't have predicted where it was going to go. It wasn't until you had this sort of corporate intervention that ideological incorporation started happening in a way that those of us who were working in this space early on, we were, we could not believe how quickly this mimetic content and sort of trolling references became part of regular online speak. And so even in my classroom, so I started teaching as a graduate teaching assistant in 2008, and I could always tell who the trolls in my room were. There was always one or two, and they would make little reference. They would say basically little memes in class, and then I would respond in the same kind of troll speak, and they would be shocked. They had no idea how I knew what they were talking about. And it was just only trolls would engage in this kind of behavior. Can you give me an example of that? Oh, goodness. I mean, so just like the phrase, oh, so much of this requires so much background, but the like a little phrase like an hero. So an hero was kind of a, a famous and um, 
really upsetting meme that emerged in 2008 and it essentially was the result of a of a young a young man who had killed himself and long story something that he had posted on Facebook ended up making its way to 4chan and became well a friend of his had written a basically like a commemorative sort of message on his Facebook page and then that Facebook page ended up on this website called my dead space, something about those commemorating accounts of people who had died. That's the content that ended up on 4chan. And so then the trolls thought it was hilarious that there was this grammatical misfire that this young person had posted in response to this other young person having killed themselves. So terrible story across the board. But that particular phrase, and hero, the, the young man had said that his friend was an hero for taking that final step. So there's nothing funny about that. It's horrifying. But trolls weren't thinking about the family and they weren't thinking about the reality of, you know, a young person having, you know, ended their lives in that way. So they just descended on this little joke of an hero. So in my classroom, there would just be little moments where Almost always a, a white male in the class would make a little reference to something like Anne Hero, and I would, I knew what they were saying, and then I would signal to them, I understand the language that you're speaking. I wouldn't respond in like a trolling thing, but I would sort of indicate to them, like, I know what you're doing. I know what's happening here. Their faces would turn red, but it was always really easy to pinpoint, to pick out who the subcultural trolls in the room were because they were the only people who would have any reason to know anything about any of that content. So it's actually pretty easy from a research perspective. I could pick them out of a room. I could pick them out of a chat room. I could pick them out on Facebook. They were so glaring because they were compelled to send out these, what I called in my book, subcultural bat signals. They just, they had to drop these little trolling references. And they were the only people who had access to that information. So it was very clear who was trolling and who wasn't. After 2011, when Know Your Meme sort of entered the scene and then more and more people started using troll language, trollish language, in a, a just a more casual, everyday way, it became increasingly difficult, and then it became impossible for me to distinguish between who a subcultural troll was and who just a person who spent time on Facebook was. And that was something, you know, trying to figure out, well, how do you study that? Now, what do I do as a researcher? That was one of the major hurdles that I faced during that research time, because what once had been a clearly defined subculture was now just how people talk to each other on the internet. So you, you talked about the corporate intervention becoming what really launches this. Tell me why that for you was the turning point. Well, I mean, it, it wasn't a turning point for me personally. It was just objectively when that content became commoditizable. Up till that point, it wasn't, you know, some marketers, um, what was the, Wyden and Kennedy, they were an ad, um, they were an advertising agency out of Portland, I think. But they were the ones that had done, had the uh, old uh, the old Spice commercials um, that was like very internet-y in aesthetic and in content. So there were a few people who were clearly part of the subculture, who clearly spent a lot of time within those spaces. But only one or two companies were able to really crack that nut because you had to have people basically embedded to even know how you might try to sell something using the internet aesthetic. It was so esoteric and specific at the time. And then after 2011, 
you had all of these basically millennials, right? And you had all these advertisers who wanted to reach those millennials. So there was a there was a great incentive to utilize this this uh, rich resource of know your meme. And to basically use memes to try to make your own brand go viral. And that was something that caused a lot of consternation for people within, quote unquote, internet culture. And then also in trolling spaces. And there was a lot of overlap between those two at the time. And people actively talked about this. This was a common point of frustration and lamentation is that, you know, they, the man essentially was taking our, in scare quotes, content and then turning it into essentially advertising revenue. So there was a great awareness of the shift as it was taking place. And it really kind of crystallized in 2012. By 2013, trolling culture was internet culture, period. It's just that nobody knew that history. And so they didn't, they weren't able to trace back how all of these like advice animals and image macros and all of this kind of stuff that that had been floated that came to the surface because of 4chan. And then it just suffused out over this period of years. And for, like I said, myself and other researchers in the space, it was one of the most shocking things that any of us watched happen because we watched it happen in real time. So the, the reason I ask about that is that it, it seems to me there's a difference between what I think of as the co-option of trolling culture by mostly lame brands with maybe the exception of Wendy's who does it pretty well, but mostly lame <laughs> brands like picking up on, you know, like the little baby make it, you know, like doing the fist pump uh, that, that's always on Reddit. And then what I would call the the or what you call in fact the amplification of trolling culture because the other thing that begins to happen around this time is say BuzzFeed is really rising up and one of the, I mean BuzzFeed is heavily built on running through Reddit and 4chan and other places and finding the memes and finding the stuff that is like the most appealing and then repackaging that as highly viral content that they then amplify using their own channels, but they also give it more context. They make it possible to understand. I mean, certainly Vox has explained a number of memes in its day, but but it's not a, not a particularly core part of how we were built. But that seems to me to be the way that a lot of the stuff becomes more important. There's like they're the people who try to take it out of its initial roots, basically decontextualize an already decontextualized medium. And then there are the people who who like give it rocket fuel because it is a demonstrated way to get clicks on the internet. Of course, yeah. And it also is worth noting that some of the people who originally worked for Rocket Boom and Know Your Meme ultimately worked at BuzzFeed, that that you had this sort of flow of even just talent that were um, really fueling that along. So, so that's why sort of troll stuff, even though it, trolling was sort of could often be very fringe and, like I said, deeply offensive, it was part of the content creator. So not just, you know, participatory creation, but the people who worked at the companies who set the frames and the discourse, like folks at BuzzFeed, those were all people who had both feet in these worlds. And so, yeah, they were conversant in those spaces and and, and were able to find ways to make that content even more viral than it had ever been before. So yeah, I mean, it is important to draw that distinction between advertisers who clumsily employ meme culture stuff and then people who were part of that world, like in a very basic way, they came up in trolling circles In they spent a lot of their teenage years on 4chan. They ended up being hired by spaces like BuzzFeed and being reporters for other sort of technology focused sites and even within technology sections of broader sort of bigger um, journalism outlets. So 
all of the the stuff in the water, all the sort of latent poison in that water, it's not just that it washes through the, the media landscape through unofficial participatory channels. The people who controlled the gates were drinking the water for years up until that point. So, so that's how, you know, troll stuff ended up becoming such a integral component of, of internet culture and by extension sort of broader popular and political culture. So, you know, I could not have predicted in 2008 that we would have ended up where we ended up. But now that we're here, you can draw a, a line, maybe not a straight line, but you can draw certainly a wiggly line um, back to those early spaces. So let's talk a little bit about Gamergate because uh, that that that's a turning point in all this. I guess I guess the place to start is what was Gamergate? <laughs> um, and now six so, hours later. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I mean, Gamergate. It's. I think the simplest way, especially given where we ended up. At the time, Gamergate, you could tell a more complicated story about how it started and where it started and ethics and games, journalism, and all of that stuff. But looking back with hindsight, Gamergate was a hate and harassment campaign that allowed folks, uh, mostly white dudes, who were uncomfortable with um, the growing diversity within the games industry and the world generally to express and vent their anger at the existence of women and people of color. I mean, I, I think that at this point in 2018, heading into 2019, it's really important to look at the core of what Gamergate was, that you can tell a more complicated story and there are lots of people who have and will continue telling more complicated stories. But it really was, it really was a, a battle cry in some ways for people who were feeling threatened by their own centrality within games specifically and then culture more broadly. So that was a place where white male identity politics really um, turned violent. And basically it it took 4chan, which always had these um, fascistic undercurrents. That's a phrase that Sam Biddle, um, formerly of Gawker, once used to describe the space. It kind of allowed those undercurrents to present themselves more and more clearly and then as those currents became bigger and bigger, it started attracting more and more like-minded people for whom uh, identity-based antagonisms, it wasn't just a source of lulls, it was a point of identification. So basically, you had a space that was amenable to sexism and amenable to racism and amenable to all kinds of identity antagonisms. And so then more and more people who really ascribed to those ideologies either felt emboldened to express them not under the guise of lulls, but as an actual, like, feeling in the world, an actual ideology, or it attracted additional participants who heard about these amenable spaces through, you know, journalistic amplification of the story. So it really is a, is a, is a time where the ambivalence of the politics started to crystallize into reactionary um, extremist politics. So I want to I want to add a, just like a little bit of literalism on top of that. So Gamergate, and and I'll probably get details wrong, but Gamergate is this moment where you've had for you know probably at that point a couple of years a movement in video game journalism in particular towards thinking more about issues of diversity and representation, criticizing games for like having these like real tits and ass characters, and so it's like building resentment. 
And then there's this super weird flashpoint where there's an allegation that uh, a an indie game designer who's a woman was like cheating on her boyfriend with a, a game reviewer, which is like not even probably not even true. And it just explodes into this unbelievable harassment campaign of her under the guise of ethics in video game journalism, which is really like people saying they're tired of these politically correct journalists telling them what their game should be like. And on the other side, you know, you 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 have this sort of war joined with people saying like this kind of reactionary, anti-woman, anti-people of color, like unbelievably like white male privileged world and like the way they're expressing this anger just shows like how dangerous the internet is and how and how defensive these spaces are of their privilege. And what's so unusual about Gamergate is that it is like objectively this unbelievably bizarre, complex, niche, like nothing thing that happens on the internet that I feel like it's a point where you saw the way the systems had begun interacting because it blows up and all of a sudden, like as you say, like all the journalism groups come in. And so Gamergate gets covered. It's where Milo Yiannopoulos makes his name. He's not a video gamer. He doesn't like video games. He doesn't like people who play video games. He makes fun of them. But he comes in as a kind of heroic warrior against the feminists for, you know, the the kind of Gamergaters. But, you know, it gets all this coverage in liberal outlets too who are, you know, coming in on the side of like the people who are being harassed and, and on the side of like diversity and representation in these spaces being important. It's always seemed to me that like three years before it could have never have happened. Because we wouldn't have had the tools, one, to see that it was blowing up. Like it wouldn't have – it was happening so much on Reddit and it was happening on um, Twitter. And, and so it was in places that journalists now were and could see. But we hadn't been attuned to or in some cases basically it hadn't existed even just a couple of years before. But then also what happens is every time we write about it, it's getting all this attention because it's filtering back through these um, platforms. And so now we're like really getting engaged in it because like there's this feedback loop of the more you cover Gamergate – the more traffic you're getting on both sides. And like it, it just – it seems to me to be this moment where like it all spilled out. It, it spilled out over a weird thing. But the thing that now to me defines not just internet politics but a lot of politics more generally, which is fundamentally a fight between people who think these issues of social justice are important and people who think that they're being censored and persecuted by the PC police – and that becoming like the divide that gets amplified um, in online algorithmic spaces and then amplified by journalistic, you know, political journalism that is paying attention to these spaces. Like that's the moment where it all comes together and like you see the shape of what's to come. Yeah. And as you were as you were just speaking and you did a great job covering all of that, I was thinking so I just moved. Uh, this is my first semester at Syracuse University and I just moved to central New York. And so I've been, you know, trying to learn a little bit about where I am and the history of the area. And so part of that is learning about the Erie Canal, which is something that I had, I had heard that phrase before, but I didn't quite, I didn't quite know what it was or what it did or what it looked like. And the Erie Canal, what once was the Erie Canal had gone through right, right through the center of, of Syracuse. So I've, I've learned a little bit more about the Erie Canal. And this connects because – so the Erie Canal was built um, at a time it sort of opened up obviously a lot of avenues for economic expansion. And it was only in existence. It was only operational for a couple of decades. It was sort of short time frame when you think about sort of um, American innovation. But what the Erie Canal did, even though it was fairly short-lived in terms of its primary – as the primary mode of transport of goods – is that it laid the infrastructural groundwork for the railroad. 
So the Erie Canal comes just a few years before the railroad, basically, if you're talking historically. So it, you kind of, it's this sense when you're walking through the museum of like, man, they went through a lot of trouble for basically this, this waterway to be supplanted by the railroad. But then you think about all the infrastructure that was laid because of the Erie Canal, all of the towns that cropped up to support what was happening with the, the transport of goods through the Erie Canal while it was operational and at its full um, at its peak, basically. So the Erie Canal goes away, but then that's what allows the railroad to really, everybody was set for the railroad to appear. And I think that that analogy, which, like I said, just occurred to me in this moment, really captures, it's a good analog for what Gamergate did for Donald Trump. That it sort of laid all of the infrastructure that was needed, all of the amplification channels, all of the rhetorical strategies, all of the organizational strategies, that that was tested during Gamergate. And then once the, you know, presidential election cycle kicked in, basically all the infrastructure was just utilized, but now— you know, towards a slightly different end, but not really. It was a continuation of something that had started, and then it was basically brought to its the true pinnacle through the election of Donald Trump, just as the the railroad was sort of the true pinnacle of transportation of goods and services through central New York. This, I think, raises a really interesting question, which is, in some ways, all of these examples we're giving are an example of a really central divide in American culture and politics taking a somewhat ridiculous form. So Gamergate, ethics in video game journalism, this <laughs> Baroque story about some spurned, I don't know, like video game player? Video, I, don't, I don't even remember who the guy in all this was. It's like a ridiculous zone for this to happen in. And Donald Trump too. The idea that Donald Trump is going to be president, if you just take a step back from like the insane simulated reality that we're currently existing in, like that is a ridiculous thing for anybody to be taking seriously and 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 for things to be attaching themselves to. But what is attaching here is there are people willing to or issues willing to like grab the live wire of what are turning out to be the divides of this period, which is like are you comfortable with a diversifying America in which women and people of color and people of different sexual or gender preferences are demanding more representation and more power and getting it? Or do you want to put that back in the bottle? And are you furious over the ways in which those demands are making demands on your behavior and are drawing things that maybe you thought were funny or maybe you thought were okay or maybe you just were more comfortable with? They're drawing those things out of bounds. And I, I guess my question for you is why are these the particular divides that internet politics going back into trolling and forward into Trump – center around? Why are the divides not how you feel about taxes or foreign policy or any of a million other things that have divided us in this country at other times? Like why why are these identity lines the ones that become the the sort of live wires of, of online politics? I mean, I think that it's hard to speak for everyone, right? Like I don't know if this would be a universal. But you have a PhD. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, so, that's right. So I mean – <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I. So I'm, I'm always a little reluctant to make sort of broad strokes um, explanations for people's behavior and what's in their hearts and minds because half the time we don't know what's in our own damn hearts and minds, and so then speculating for others can be a little bit tricky. But I think that, I think that one of the reasons that you know GamerGate and sort of Trumpism, why that's functioned as such a flashpoint for so many is that it 
represents for so many, for the first time maybe in their lives, challenges to the ability to not have to consider consequences. So with early trolls that I was studying, you know, they never had to think about how their behavior impacted others. They never had to think about the bodies of different others. They never had to think about anything other than their own amusement, their own enjoyment, their own space, that they got to create the internet in their own image. And over time, for a variety of reasons, including the fact that just more people started to be online and, and, and enter those spaces, that ability to just kind of not really have to ever challenge yourself or question yourself or question your assumptions about the world, suddenly people were being asked to do that. And being asked to do that to say that it was uncomfortable is an understatement, that there was a, I think there's been a, a really strong reactionary impulse of, I don't want to think about consequences. Don't tell me what to do. My body is fine. What are you talking about harm? So, you know, that earlier in the discussion when we were talking about how a lot of early trolling behaviors, it was a maybe not a function of sociopathy, um, but but a function of sort of decontextualized thinking and fetishized thinking. You only see what is through the little tiny pinprick that's a comfortable place to be. You don't, you just don't have to worry about anything. And so suddenly being told that you now have to take into account an entire world that you never had to think about once in your life. I think that that has been the source of a, of a great deal of resentment and rage on behalf of a lot of people who never really had to think that way and think it's ridiculous that they have to because they may not even accept the idea that their speech and behavior is harmful. They may have been so ensconced for so long that they don't understand that when you're talking about sexist, violent language, it's not just about, I'm offended. It's not, it's not a snowflake response. It is literally that action is violent and damaging and dehumanizing. And they don't see it that way because it, it, that just doesn't compute. So I think, that, I think that it makes some sense that this would be the flashpoint rather than what your position on tax policy is or whatever, because it doesn't get to the core of whether or not you're a good person. Well, isn't isn't what they would say that to say that having too many busty women in video games is violent, like that is the snowflake response? And why can't people just like leave them alone to enjoy their video games? Well, I mean, well, that's what I mean. Yeah, that that it's the failure or the unwillingness to think beyond your own ears, that when you've lived a, a, a privileged life, your entire life, and your actions don't result in any harm that you can see, that for you is, is not going to seem like a very big deal. So then there's this paradigmatic disconnect between other people's responses, people saying that's dehumanizing that, you know, it, or even framing it in terms of this is part of rape culture or whatever. And then you, as this as this man, you don't feel like you've ever hurt anybody. You've never hit a woman, right? And so then this reaction seems completely hyperbolic. And then you, instead of asking, oh goodness, how does, how is this maybe true? Or how could I think differently about my assumptions? Instead of doing that, you further entrench yourself in this position that everybody else is hysterical and you're in the right. And so, I mean, I'm not saying that that makes that response okay, but I do think that that explains some of the absolute rage you encounter when you ask somebody, can you please think about how your behavior impacts other people? Some people are simply not willing to do that because they never had to up until that moment. And so there's just this entrenchment. And again, I don't, you know, I don't know what's in (laughs) millions of people's hearts and minds. I can't fully speculate, but it seems to me that that narrative has some salience. 
again, to what extent that lines up with everybody else's experiences, I don't, I don't know. But that that narrative, that's how I think about it. So to, I'm going to try to channel what's in some of these hearts, or at least as I understand it, because something I think is we've been talking a lot about white male trolling culture, and that's one of many things happening on the internet in this period. But it. It's certainly my impression that one of the things powering all this is that we use the word privileged and, and we've both used it here a couple of times, but these kids don't feel privileged. They look around on the internet and they feel that they're kind of under attack. The mobs are coming for them. They look at like the the websites that are rising up like BuzzFeed and you know Mashable and, and Vox and, and, and lots of others and they see a – elevation and like a veneration almost of like pro-diversity narratives and the, you know the idea that like representation is an is an ultimate good and that they keep being told they're privileged but what they seem to think they're doing or feel like they're doing is just like fighting for their own right to just like have their little corners of the, of the internet where they're less bothered and that there's something going on here in which the reason I ask this bigger question about why identity was becoming the line is that something that happened on, on a bunch of different sides of this simultaneously was that as the media looked for what to amplify, what they found, I think, and, and this accords with my experience in the media, was that what was blowing up on Twitter and Facebook and Reddit and other things were stories and issues and outrages and triumphs that cut on these identity lines, right? Things about the gender wage gap or Black Lives Matter or, you know, Obama, you could frame in this way, or Trump, obviously, you could frame it from the opposite direction. And that, you know, online, there's this sort of, uh, I don't want to say dominance, but there's this rise of a much more, like, I guess the social justice left is the way to put it. And that, you know, this world ends up as a kind of counter reaction, like a reactionary force to it. They, they feel themselves losing power. They keep being told they're privileged, but nobody seems to like them and they feel very discriminated by the media. And so they begin to, to fight. They, they, they begin to fight back and, and there's something in that collision, in this like complete shifting of the power dynamics online that, that feels important to this. We, I think, typically layer the power dynamics of society onto the power dynamics of the internet. And while I think there's a lot of truth to that, I also think there's something to the fact that people are very much experiencing the power dynamics of the internet as different and, and distorted than the power dynamics that clearly exist in society. I mean, yeah, I think that with Gamergate and heading into Trump stuff and then certainly once you get to sort of Charlottesville, that – I think that what has become increasingly clear is is the sort of embodied repercussions of what is happening on the internet uh, versus what is happening in quote-unquote real life that's sort of dissolving that line between what is what is quote-unquote real life and then what's on the internet and, you know, I, I, I think that regardless, the, the spaces that, that these folks have created for themselves online where there was a sense that there was some freedom or protectedness from that encroachment, I guess that they're not feeling that. I mean, it, I do think that amplification plays an interesting role in this, too, because you have all of these basically aggrieved, angry white men. And what a lot of journalists have done is then have handed those aggrieved, angry white men microphones. And whether or not, I mean, who knows 
exactly how every single person reacts to to that. But I think that that also sort of provides a kind of beacon, a signpost, you are welcome here. Kind of getting back to the to the Gamergate point of you have a lot of journalists who are amplifying that particular story and bringing more eyeballs to those spaces. It just, it means that more self-selecting people are going to, are going to enter that particular fray. So I think that amplifying and normalizing the discourse of being aggrieved is also a reason why this grievance has become so prominent because it's a saleable media narrative in many circles. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So this is where I want us to get into your work on media amplification, because we're, I think, real culprits in a lot of this. So you have this great report called The Oxygen of Amplification, and it's all about the ways in which trolls realized that they could provoke the media into covering them. And while the media might cover them negatively, being covered negatively was not actually a problem. That was a benefit. It furthered their narrative. It helped them recruit. Can, can you talk a bit about that, that sort of overturning of the dynamic that negative coverage is worse than no coverage at all? Oh, that – well, that dynamic has been in play and has been a fundamental component of my research since I started doing it. So – I became embedded and I flagged myself as a researcher. I wasn't, this wasn't a secret project, but I was embedded as a researcher within a group of Facebook memorial page trolls, which. What a, um, what a world. <laughs> what a world. No, I know. So this is in 2010 where there was a, a an uptick in young teenagers dying by suicide and there was lots of media coverage of that, and a lot of the media coverage centered on what was referred to then as cyberbullying. At the time, the primary term for bad behavior online was cyberbullying. Trolling hadn't supplanted that term just yet. But so during all this time, when you had this series of very high-profile deaths and, and, and tragedies and traumas, a group of trolls on Facebook, who some of whom had connections to 4chan, some of whom didn't, these trolls actually tended to be a little bit older, like more in their 20s and 30s, as opposed to the teenagers and early 20s of uh, folks who were on 4chan. 
and it was suffused. It wasn't just like a 12 people. It was a lot of people who were able to use Facebook basically to go after either the friends and family of recently deceased teenagers and murder victims and all, all stripes of, of horrors. And then a lot of them would go after what they referred to as grief tourists. So this was when Facebook started allowing for memorialized or for memorials, basically, memorial pages. And so then these trolls would go to the memorial pages and basically pick fights with strangers who were grieving for other strangers on the internet. And these trolls just took great offense to that. They didn't believe that it was possible to care about someone you didn't know. And so how could you be grieving for them? You were clearly just doing it for the attention, whatever. So they went in and then would try to, quote unquote, teach these people a lesson. So I was embedded with them. And one of the things that they talked about explicitly from the get-go was that they wanted reporters to report on their behavior that the more horrific the story, the younger the child who had killed themselves, or the more violent and disturbing the murder that took the life of a, of a young teenager, the more likely that reporters would be sniffing around, and then the easier it would be for these trolls to trick them into writing stories not about the victims, not about the circumstances that surrounded, you know, whatever happened, but the trolls themselves. So this was their goal, and this is what they would talk to me about. And so then when I, around the same time, I started doing some press stuff myself because my name became Google search indexed alongside basically everything that was horrifying. So whenever there would be a high profile death or suicide, there would be inevitable trolling. And then I would get an inevitable call from journalists who wanted me to explain the behaviors and more often than not to introduce me to a, quote, real life troll and I would tell them every single time, and this started in 2010, I would say, please believe me that all they want is for you to write this article, that this is the whole purpose of what they're doing, or at least a primary purpose of what they're doing. You are part of this game. You are the trophy to them. Just so you know, if you publish this article, they will do it again. This is only going to incentivize worse behaviors. It is going to establish a behavioral blueprint. I mean, I was having this conversation about amplification all the way back then, and in many cases— the journalists didn't quite – well, they didn't always appreciate that line of discussion. Or they were like, yeah, we know, but we can't say that because my editor won't let me or whatever. And so that line of discussion never, ever, ever entered into the reporting that – that the stories that were ultimately reported out. And so – It was always mm – -hmm. So the thing that, that, that I want to note here from the journalist side is that the thing we will often say if we're covering something that we know is terrible and we are giving it oxygen is like – Oh, but don't worry. Like we're not just going to do like a like an on the one hand, on the other hand with this. Like like we're, we're going to be critical. We're going to debunk it. We're going to like the idea is that journalism comes in here. I don't quite want to say like as an avenging angel because also we're just trying to tell you something is happening. But there is this belief that if the journalism pointed at something is negative, then that acts as a sanction on the thing you are pointing at. And you're saying that's not true. No. I mean, so the idea was always, and, and this is the, the response that I would get back then, and it's the response that you even hear quite a lot to this day, is this idea that light disinfects. If we call right. attention to the horrible behavior that they're engaging in, everyone will know how terrible it is. And basically, it's sort of a, a, sort of a social justice approach to these behaviors with the assumption that if you call it out for what it is, and you show how egregious and how violent and how hateful these behaviors are, that that's something how going to fix the problem. And 
the opposite is actually true, that these trolls from the beginning, you know, so this is almost 10 years ago, they, and this, it wasn't the first time that they had done this. I mean, early, even 4chan in the early mid to 2000s, this was the playbook. Like they, they just wanted to get reporters to, to report on what they were doing for one thing, because they just thought it was funny and maybe they weren't thinking about it in terms of recruiting, but it was just this idea of, we want attention. We are going to trick these reporters into doing what we want, which is for them to talk about us. And it doesn't matter if the reporting is negative. In fact, the more negative it is, the lulzier it is. Because negative reporting, especially when it takes a really strong condemnatory tone, it's really, you know, critical of the behaviors and critical of the people who participate in them. Nothing could be funnier to a troll. That's hilarious to them. And so I had this sort of strange existence um, because essentially whenever something terrible would happen, then I would have to drop what I was doing and then go sit in front of my computer and wait for my phone to ring for it to be a reporter. And then I would warn them and then they would still report this very, usually very sort of sensationalized blow-by-blow account of what the trolls were doing. And then the trolls would share that article on their private groups, and they would laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. And then they would do the same thing again, and then the same thing again. And it was like, it just never ended. It was just because the behaviors worked, they had every reason to continue doing it. And that's precisely what these trolls were telling me. I mean, so they were very clear that part of it was that they just wanted to goad reporters. So some of the the folks that I worked with then were probably, you know, had some sociopathic tendencies, but many of them had the same issue, the same kind of pinprick vision where they just didn't ever have to think about the friends and family of the deceased. They didn't have to think about any of the sort of upsetting emotional stuff. They were just trying to get reporters to report on them, period. And when they did, it was a victory. And so then that was sort of established as this is what you do if you want attention, here are the behaviors that you engage in. And those behavioral strategies were essentially passed down or at least were learned by other trolls or other media manipulators who wanted to maximize exposure. So negative coverage was never a bad thing. Negative coverage, that was the gold mine because more people were mad. And so that concern, the worry about amplification is just, it's always been present within this particular sphere. And even if you're talking about sort of white supremacists who, you know, not the original teenagers on 4chan in 2008, right? But you're talking about Andrew Anglin or other folks who are deep, deep, deep into sort of white supremacy. They, they're uh, the leaked style guide, the Daily Stormer style guide that was leaked. Um, uh, Daily Stormer being the, the neo-Nazi yeah. website. A neo-Nazi website, yeah, there they had a style guide that was leaked. It's not clear if it was accidentally leaked, if it was, if it truly was something they didn't want to publish, or if they they wanted to publish it so they leaked it deliberately. I don't I don't know the answer to that, but the style guide was leaked, and in it, it essentially described all of the strategies that I just discussed. That this isn't a secret. That this is a communications messaging strategy. And the problem is that reporters who often really mean well and who have been trained um, to, you know, speak truth to falsehood, that impulse is precisely the impulse that media manipulators and abusers have have weaponized, especially over the course of the last two years. So I, so this, I think, is like an important moment in, in our, our talk because we've been talking here a lot about trolls doing it for the lulls, right? Like they, they thought it was hilarious when they got negative coverage. But that's not what the Daily Stormer was doing. There's another in, – in the media manipulator sphere, there's another world of people and this now 
I think goes all the way up to the president, who I'm not comparing specifically to the Daily Stormer. But but there's a whole sphere of people who part of their narrative is the media is against them and persecuting them. And so what they want is simultaneously amplification, but the media fighting them is part of the point, right? That's how they show that the media and the forces that be, the powers that be, are trying to keep you away from the truth. Yeah, I mean, and and messing with reporters and tricking reporters and just basically, yeah, manipulating reporters, bending them to their will. It's not just you know previous sort of iterations of uh, on within the right. There's there's often been a contentious relationship between you know the right, especially the far right, and then and then journalists. Um, you think of Sarah Palin and the lamestream media, right? Like there's there's often been some bad blood between between those two groups. But what's sort of different now is that you have the same adversarial relationship between far-right extremists and the news media with the added layer that it's not just – they don't just hate journalists. It is culturally fun to mess with journalists. And so they're coming at this engagement with – you know, it's also about sort of scrambling the brains of reporters, tricking the reporters. It's not just calling attention to the fact that they think that, you know, the news media is biased against conservatives. That's – sort of child's play in comparison to what a lot of these folks are doing because they're engaging in strategies that are specifically designed to weaponize and problematize all of the ways that political reporters in particular have always reported on not just on the right but but any kind of political spin that that these manipulators are so great at directing the norms of the institution against itself and harming the institution with the institution's own appendages, basically. And that's what makes it so difficult for reporters to enter these spaces and to emerge without having done more damage by the time they walk away with a story, no matter how careful they try to be. But doesn't this go back to something you said earlier in the conversation, which is none of these systems are broken. They're all working exactly as planned, which is to say Mm -hmm. that there is a complicated symbiotic relationship here between the media and media manipulators. Now I'll say like Donald Trump. Donald Trump is great for ratings, right? As CNN will tell you, as MSNBC will tell you, as Fox News will tell you, Donald Trump, as Donald Trump will tell you all the time. Donald Trump, like he gives the media stuff the media can really turn into something good for the business model, even as it's breaking, even as a way in which we have at least traditionally covered Trump, and I think have often covered him, has done a lot of damage to to the country by just giving him endless, endless, endless oxygen. There is this way in which what the trolls figured out, what the media manipulators figured out, is that if they gave us really outrageous stuff, outrageous was one of the ingredients in Newsworthy in the way we defined it. And outrageous is really good for the internet. It was going to get us tons of clicks, which was going to give us an incentive to cover it more. And so it's like the trolls are getting the coverage they want. The media is getting the audience it wants. And like society as a whole is breaking apart. Yeah, I mean, and in my in my book, and so my book was the book on trolls um, was published in 2015. So this was, I, I, I think that I got in one or two gestures to Gamergate, but that wasn't the focus. The focus was sort of the evolution, the emergence and evolution of, of 4chan. And even then, even in that book, the way that I am trying to think of the exact, I wrote the damn thing, but the phrase I used to describe the relationship between trolls, subcultural trolls, and then news organizations was, a cybernetic feedback loop predicated on sensationalism. And so with trolls, even way back in the day, they essentially did what they did 
in order to amass lulls. They they wanted strong negative reactions. They were kind of paid in lulls. Journalists weren't after the same objective. They didn't they weren't trying to deliberately harm um, and dehumanize you know their readers. But they also were incentivized. They also kind of got paid in the financial equivalent of the same sort of thing. And so as bad as trolls would behave, journalists would benefit. And when journalists did what they did, trolls would benefit. And they and they really were perfect bedfellows. And that relationship was established as long as there has been something called subcultural trolling, that that was also something that these trolls recognized and exploited that journalists needed them as much as they needed journalists. And, you know, moving into, you know, more recent events, right? I think that Trump, whether or not he has personally come up with, you know, effective media manipulation strategies, like if he has a little treatise or something, I don't know if he's really plotted this out, but he certainly is the beneficiary of that same kind of relationship. And it's a really hard one to report your way out of, because no matter what you do, you're playing the game. And as soon as you step out on the field, everybody loses. Let me give a really concrete example of this, of of how it works. So a couple weeks ago now, we had the the Trump obsessive who was sending bombs in the mail to media figures and political opposition to, to Donald Trump. And this was a scary thing and, and thank God none of the bombs went off. But but this was somebody who was trying to carry out a campaign of mass assassination against Trump's media enemies. The bomber got caught and then the next morning, Donald Trump sent out a tweet saying the media are the real enemy of the people. The media is the real enemy of the people. And he knows when he uses that particular um, phrase, like that gets a much bigger reaction than fake news. Like the media is like fine, fake news, whatever. Mm-hmm. Enemy of the people is a kind of fascist, you know, whipping people up. So this is a day after this, um, this again, like a, a MAGA obsessive begins sending – is caught for sending these bombs. And then obviously the media is furious. And so that day, Press Secretary Sanders, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, she holds her first open press briefing in weeks. She's mostly stopped holding them, but she schedules one for that day, knowing that she's going to get a lot of angry questions from the media that she can then get into a fight with them about. And then there will be coverage, as in fact there was. It was the homepage of Fox News that whole day. There will be all this coverage of the way in which the media and the, the Trump administration and they're attacking the Trump administration. And I was looking at this and thinking, like, what are we supposed to do here? Like they are manipulating us, right? They are causing a conflict. They are trying to change a the subject. They want the media versus Donald Trump and the administration narrative. And they know exactly how to get it. They're even doing things that are abnormal for them, like a press briefing, in order to get it. They like they know how to manipulate us and us covering their like kind of terrible actions is exactly what they wanted. It is it's like built into the program. And yet, like, what are we supposed to do? It legitimately is newsworthy. Like, how do you read all that? Because like to me, this is a pretty new this is I'm not saying it's never happened before, but I've never seen quite this dynamic operating over this extended period of time um, as it does now. Yeah, and I think this also connects to uh, the dangers of essentially debunking, right? Because mm-hmm. what part of what ends up happening is that you have Trump um, and then echoed by the administration more broadly, you know, the, the news media is the enemy of the people. The very effort to stand up and say, 
no, we're not, that that's that you're automatically then amplifying the message to begin with. And so any efforts to sort of defend yourself as as an institution or or individually that just helps repeat the underlying claim that you are, in fact, the enemy of the people. And that's where sort of issues of media literacy become really complicated because within journalism in particular, but also within, you know, academic contexts, pedagogical contexts, the assumption is that you issue correctives to false information. And that's going to be the thing that, you know, truth will out, right? That if you say what is actually real, then that's going to, you know, shed the appropriate light that's going to appropriately disinfect the dis or misinformation. And then, and then everything will go back to normal. But, but this particular instance and so many instances like this show the limitation of that thinking, that if you're trying to debunk something, especially if you're vociferously debunking it, you know, all that is going to do is just send more oxygen onto the story. So, yeah, I mean, the question is then, do you not cover what the president does? And I suppose a case could be made in certain circumstances, but that's a really impossible position that journalists have been placed into, you know, and whether or not Trump, like I said, whether or not he is actively, he set forth a strategy and this is what he's doing and it's very analytic or if this is just his knee-jerk lashing out impulse, it kind of doesn't matter because it still paints journalists into the same really troubling corner. And the more that journalists push back against this idea, it just makes that the dominant narrative. It frames the discourse for so many millions of Americans. And I don't know how you come back from that. I think the caravan is a really good example of this. So there's a Media Matters analysis, which showed that the Washington Post and the New York Times, they ran more than 115 stories on the caravan, the migrant caravan, in the week, a couple weeks before the election. And there's just like, there is no world under which that is that important of an issue, that it should be getting more coverage than like basically everything else in in American policy and life. Um, but so Matt Gertz, who's a, an analyst there, he wrote this, I think, pretty interesting piece and because he was looking at the actual pieces themselves. And what he wrote was many of these articles are on their own merits laudable. They provide compelling stories of the migrants. They debunk the president's lies and conspiracy theories. They point to facts that undermine his demagoguery. But the sheer volume of the coverage can't help but fuel Trump's claims that the caravan's approach represents a crisis and suck oxygen away from other stories in the lead up to the midterm elections. And and that dynamic where Donald Trump is willing to make the trade of getting a lot of negative coverage and a lot of debunking coverage and you know being called a demagogue and a conspiracy theorist as long as he's getting to control the agenda completely, that's a trade he's very comfortable with that I think is you know misinforming our, our audience that I think is making the country worse. But also, he's the president. Uh, you know, in your oxygen of amplification report, one of the things that comes out really a lot is basically the idea is, you know, maybe don't cover all these trolls. Like, there's a lot to cover in the world. There's a lot of newsworthy things. Maybe don't just look for the most offensive thing somebody's doing on the internet and, and, and rush to that. But the problem with the president is he is the president. And the Presidents do traditionally have agenda-setting power, and while we're pretty comfortable ignoring more or less boring things a president does, we're not at all comfortable ignoring interesting ones that he does. So there's this – I don't know. We we seem to me to be getting played. Like we seem to me to be getting completely played every single day, and we tell people, no, no, look at the stories. They're critical, and it's like, yeah, they are, but that's absorbed, right? Like that's like priced into the system now. And as long as we are, you know, letting Donald Trump completely set our agenda for us, you know, he's going to do it by 
concentrating everybody on the things that make them angriest and most afraid all of the time. And like that's not the most newsworthy things in the world and the media should not be complicit in that in, in the long run. Yeah, it reminds me of sort of discourses around the rejoiner don't feed the trolls, which I find really problematic in a lot of ways because this idea of, you know, if you don't feed the troll, then then you won't get trolled. It sort of buys into victim-blaming logic. Then it's like, well, if you don't want to get trolled, then don't feed them. It's basically your fault for not knowing how to internet. So I think it already it sort of partakes of some problematic assumptions about the world there. But I also think that part of the problem with that statement is don't feed the trolls. It sort of buys into their particular framing of the world, that the troll is the central figure in the conversation. They are the main character and you are a supporting character at best. So if you buy into that, if you say, okay, well, I am accepting the world on their terms and then I'm going to alter my behavior appropriately, you're basically allowing them to to own, to dominate the space. And I think, you know, if you apply the same kind of a logic to Trump, it's it, even if you push back against his narrative, you're still kind of playing the game by his own rules. And so I have thought a lot about what would an alternative to that look like? And when you're talking about lower level trolls, it's not a function of not feeding them. Because again, it, it causes all kinds of problems. It buys into their worldview. But there is a way of saying, oh, no, no, friend, I'm going to be reframing this conversation so that I will be taking control of the narrative and I will be setting the discursive frame. You can be the the bit actor in this story. I am actually the central. I am the protagonist. And I think that if there could be a way somehow to scale that, I mean, it's so difficult when you're talking about the president because he's the president. But if there could be a way to not just push back against what he says and not ignore him, not buying into this don't feed the troll logic, but just reframe not specifically that narrative, but forwarding a different narrative that kind of taking the the public discourse, taking the conversation down a different path entirely, it seems like that's the only way that you could possibly do it because then you're not playing the game by his rules. You are creating your own game and then you are generating your own oxygen for that game and you're not so reliant on his oxygen tanks. It's just the question of how how could you do that and would it be possible would it make any difference if one journalist did that? Probably not. It would need to be en masse that many, many people simultaneously just opened up a different line of discourse that didn't make everything revolve around him and around the administration. Again, I don't know how that would happen, but it seems like that's the only the only way out is a different road entirely. But, but getting back to this idea of it being the, the problem is relationships between systems. I mean, this seems to get us into the com- competitiveness of the media Mm -hmm. because like to just reframe this from a business perspective don't feed the trolls is don't get the clicks right exactly you know if you're or or don't get the watchers right i I think a lot of this is concentrated around kind of cable news twitter and facebook incentives um and i've done a lot of cable news and you get like you get second by second nielsen ratings right you know exactly how like like every minute of your show has done and you know how it's done compared to all the other shows it's an incredibly incredibly chaotic competitive space um and 
similarly, you know, do you want to be getting lots of retweets on Twitter or not that many retweets on Twitter? Mm-hmm. Do you want to be going viral on Facebook or having your, your story drop without a trace? And then if you're a, a digital organization, a, a publication, like, do you want people reading your stories or do you want them reading someone else's stories? And so you get into this thing where what's really happening here is a hyper competitive dynamic that is being fed things that really work for the competition, but then are on net to have everybody in this kind of like race to the bottom and coverage is bad. And that's a part of it that I, I genuinely don't know how to fix because, you know, you can sit around and say like, okay, like I as a journalist will try to exert more um, intentionality in what I cover and not be as reactive to what the president just did and and on and on and on. But what ends up happening is that there's a lot of competition in the media space. We all jump on these stories because they are somewhat newsworthy and and competitively it's hard to not – and then also what's happening then is that the algorithms and, and cable news, which are both more limited in what they show people than, say, a New York Times or even a Vox, what people are actually seeing are these stories because, like, they're what are getting bounced up through these through these systems. So it's like you can have a million stories that are not about the things that are what everybody's talking about, but it's the stories that are about what everybody's talking about that go viral and then really define the, the coverage that is actually getting seen on your site. And, like, that's the thing. It is, like, this kind of media manipulation I think would not have been possible in the – or not certainly not as effective – in the media of 30 years ago. Like this kind of media manipulation is a manipulation not of media actors, but of media competition. And because the media has a very hard time even talking about media competition as a factor in what we do, like we like to present ourselves like half correctly as a public service, not as a, a set of businesses competing for, for mind share and market share. But because we have so much difficulty even talking about media competition, we have a lot of trouble talking about the way people are manipulating our competitive incentives to drive our coverage. But like Donald Trump, who knows nothing if not like the fight for ratings, he's – genuinely masterful at this. He really gets it on a guttural level, gets it much better than most of us do, and like leads us around by the nose because of it. And it feels like a way in which we've become part of a pretty broken system or, or, or a way in which the system we're part of is is not doing good things for democracy. But we don't really have an answer for it because we don't really have a good understanding of the dynamics, much less a kind of like way of standing against them or, or like having a searching conversation about them. But again, that's not a failure of the system. It's a success of the system. If the system ultimately is designed to amass capital – I mean, this is really what we're talking about. We're talking about capitalism as the system. If the whole point of capitalism is to amass capital, and then you have these business practices that help you do that, there is almost no incentive not to continue doing that in precisely the ways that are destroying democracy. So this really calls attention to the ways that, at least within the institution of journalism, that capitalism is not great for democracy. It just isn't because it's always going to float to the top, the most sensationalist. And it's not just about what the agenda setting function of the news media. Of course, the news media is setting agendas left and right. That's one of the things that they do. But you also have audiences. Audiences aren't thoughtless, mindless zombies. Audiences also actively want to read certain kinds of content. So it's this confluence of the news media recognizing what's going to get clicks and then audiences saying, yes, please, we want that. We want to read stories about basically the hearts and minds of white supremacists. And that's something that came up frequently when I was doing my research for the Oxygen Report. 
the reporters I spoke to, they kind of lamented the fact that they had to keep writing all of these, you know, pieces where they would hand Richard Spencer a microphone. They didn't like it. They knew it was bad. They didn't want to give him that publicity. But those were the stories that people clicked on. Those are the stories that people shared. And so reporters were like, what are we going to do? Not report things that people want to read? Because that feeds into, you know, how, in many cases, you know, whether or not a publication stays afloat. Can you consistently produce content that people want to engage with and that you can then commoditize? So there's obviously, you know, you have the the capitalistic sort of institutional problems of what gets framed and how it gets framed and what isn't framed, what isn't covered as a result. But then you also have the question of what do audiences actively seek out? I mean, one editor-in-chief that I spoke to, he was saying that everybody talks about how, oh, we wish we want there to be more investigative journalism. We want there to be hard-hitting, thoughtfully researched pieces. And he's like, but when it comes down to it, many, many people, they don't want the health food. They want the candy. And in order to stay afloat as a publication, they have to write, basically, they have to create more candy than they would like to. So there are so many different forces that all speak to the dangers of capitalistic incentives in an institution that professes to want to communicate the truth to the people. Do you have advice not for not for writers but for editors? Listen to their writers? I mean, that was the consistent I'm not being flipped there. You know, one of the consistent conversations I had with reporters, particularly freelancers and even more particularly freelancers who happen to be women or people of color, that there are power dynamics within news organizations that you already have a lot of Um, homogeneity at news organizations. There are many of them, not all of them, but many of them are predominantly white and predominantly male. And so then that creates a power dynamic where if you happen to have less power within the organization, whether it's because of your actual position, if you're a freelancer, you're contingent, or because you're a woman and, you know, you don't get taken as seriously or because you're a person of color and you're not treated with the same respect that maybe your white colleagues get, right? That all of that can create an environment where those who would, who might be inclined to raise red flags, to be concerned about certain kinds of coverage, to to really understand the stakes for affected bodies. So stories about white supremacists, for example, that just hand, you know, microphones to Richard Spencer or any other white supremacist, those stories pose embodied dangers for people of color and for women and for disabled people and trans people and whomever else those ideals actively threaten. If you talk to and if you listen to the bodies in the newsroom who understand those threats, then different editorial decisions could be navigated. But as it is, if you have one kind of body with one kind of experience in life, not just in terms of of race and gender, but also of class, calling all of the shots, there's going to be lots of stuff that gets overlooked, lots of strategizing that doesn't happen because they themselves might be subject to the same kind of decontextualized, fetishized thinking that is at the heart of a lot of sort of trolling media manipulation to begin with. I think that is a good place to to bring this to a close. So let me ask you the question we used to end the podcast, which is, what are three books on on these issues or others that over the years have influenced you that, that you would recommend to the audience? I think one really interesting book is Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. If you sort of set aside the kind of grumpiness about television. I think that book is so – I just read it and I'm so blown away by it. It's so prescient. I mean and and the the grumpiness, I don't think that television necessarily has to – 
obviously he's talking about a different sort of media era and some of his concerns about TV generally might be a little bit overblown. But I think that the underlying point that when you tether the reporting of news and you package it as entertainment and you connect it to basically advertising concerns, that opens the institution up and public discourse more broadly up to precisely the kinds of misinformation and disinformation that we're navigating now. And it's because of advertising. So I think that the core of the book is really relevant to what we're experiencing right now and and is a great read. Also, I agree with you that you can read it and it some of it can scan as grumpy. And then you take a step back and look at the world we are living in. And it is so <laughs> much crazier and worse than even what he is imagining that the grump like at some point like we have this kind of like a uh, like instinctual aversion to grumpiness about progress mm-hmm. um and this is something he talks about in another book of his which is great which i just finished a week ago called technopoly i think it is technopoly but this idea that all technological progress is good and that anybody suggesting it might be bad it's like their grumpiness like gets them like intrinsically dismissed is a real mistake. I mean, if he knew what had happened, if he knew what was going to happen, I think he would have been a lot grumpier. <laughs> no, well, and but the thing, I guess the the part for me that doesn't quite scan, although maybe it does. I don't know. Everything is complicated. But, you know, the idea that it's it's entertaining content. It's basically yes, I agree all of the that. fun stuff mm-hmm. is going to is going to be the thing that that destroys democracy. The stuff that we're dealing with now, none of it is fun. I mean, it's not that people are having such a great time on the internet. They're so distracted and they're not paying attention to the substantive issues. I don't know about you, but I haven't had fun on the internet for years. And so, but it speaks to the earlier conversation about a lot of what ultimately metastasized, but that was in the water in early trolling spaces. That was fun to a lot of people. I think one thought there is that, you know, and I agree with that part of part of what you're saying. Like there are parts where he's like, it would be bad if learning were more fun. And you're like, wait, would it really be that bad if learning were more <laughs> no, fun? Right. But but there's this idea of entertainment. And I think that mm-hmm. entertainment doesn't have to be fun. It can be dramatic. And, right. you know, his core point there, which I had not thought about that clearly before, that mediums force forms that the, the things reflect they, they begin to mimic they they are they're infused with the medium upon which they happen and and you think about that with twitter or you think about it with cable news i mean he's worried about television and a lot of the particular kinds of television he's worried about seem unbelievably idyllic from where we're sitting now, <laughs> right way before cable news and other things but the idea that it all becomes a, a kind of entertainment and in particular a sort of entertainment of tribal collision, right? Not a comedy, but maybe a drama, or maybe it's a sports game or something like that, right? I think media, I think politics is covered as nothing so much as sports. I think there's something to that that it's not about it's not about it being fun, but it is about it being entertaining. And sometimes things are entertaining in a very anxious, upsetting, angry, right? Like my wife likes horror movies and I don't because mm-hmm. I don't like feeling nervous. Um, <laughs> I feel nervous enough in my life. But but people like a lot of, you know, one of the things that will really catch somebody can be stimulating negative reactions. And I think politics does that really well. It's a very, it's a very negative form of entertainment, but negative forms of entertainment can be very addicting. Yeah, and the other point too, um, now that I'm thinking about it, is that when he's talking about, and now this, the idea of you're juxtaposing all kinds of yeah. incongruous elements, that what that does is it, that frame makes it very difficult to take things fully seriously. If you're hearing about the latest tragedy and then suddenly the news reporter is talking about a bunny who rides a skateboard or whatever, I forget the example he gives, then, you know, it just, it it sort of minimizes what the trauma actually is or where your concern should actually lie. And I think that speaks to some of the affordances of digital spaces that, 
if you pay really close attention, it can even be difficult to kind of discern what the dominant coherent narrative of the day or the week or the month is. And if you're just getting things in little bits and pieces and they're smashed up against funny memes and like cute animal pictures and like your nephew and all of that, it just, it's harder to cognize and identify where the danger actually lies and where the action points might be. So I think that that's also relevant and resonant. So what are your other books? So the other book, I just am in the middle of Sophia Noble's uh, Algorithms of Oppression. And she's sort of talking about similar things that if you have algorithm, well, she's talking about bigger things, but in the context of this conversation, that algorithms float information to the top, not because it's true information, not because it's good information, but because it is commoditized information that she's really sort of underscoring the idea that these media systems that we engage with, they don't hinge on truth. They hinge on clicks and they hinge on what uh, the algorithms assume is relevant to you. And that creates all kinds of problems that we're living through currently. And then the third one, in the same vein, uh, Tarleton uh, Gillespie's Custodians of the Internet, I think is really good because it talks about some of these issues from the perspective of content moderation, all of the behind the scenes decisions that ultimately determine what you see in your feed. And the thing that jumps out the most there that connects to both of these books is about uh, popularity dictating visibility that, you know, social media platforms are sort of designed to help spread the most popular content. And that seems like a nice idea when you're talking about cute pictures of your nephew. But when you're talking about mis and disinformation and harassment and violence, then that incentive to spread things further and as far and fast as possible suddenly becomes it takes on a much more dangerous cast. Whitney Phillips, thank you very much. Thank you so much. That's the show. Um, if you enjoyed it, please give us a rating on iTunes or you get your podcast. It helps the show jump up in those algorithms and helps more people listen to it. I would be grateful. Thank you, as always, to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, my engineer, Griffin Tanner. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back on Monday. You know, there are all these job sites out there, and what they do is they make you wait for the right candidates to find and apply to your job. That is not smart. You know what is smart? Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash EZRA to hire the right person, to go out and find them so they know about your job and so they can apply to it in the first place. Look, like the most important thing is hiring and the most important thing for hiring is finding the right candidates and telling them that, that you have a job that they might be interested in, that they might be right for. ZipRecruiter, it doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. It's got this powerful matching technology. It scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and it actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. And, and that rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot, with over a thousand reviews. So a lot of people feel this way. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash EZRA. That is ZipRecruiter.com slash EZRA. ZipRecruiter.com slash EZRA. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.